This episode of the Pursuit Podcast is presented by Fisher Skis. What is up, everybody? Mr. Adam X here, your host of the Pursuit Podcast on the Out of Collective. It's kind of spring, kind of not spring. I don't really know what's happening with the weather. Uh, I just drove across the country again. Uh, I'm currently back in Buffalo, New York. And it's cold. It's 16 degrees. Two days ago, I was in Colorado. It was 70. Winter's not over. It's fun. Enjoy it. I've been on my bike a ton. I've been skiing a ton. Life is good. You know, as, as some would say, life rips. So I hope everyone's doing all right. I hope everyone's feeling fine. I'm feeling great. Uh, my schedule, I'll be at Sea Otter next week. So if anyone's going to Sea Otter and attending and you want to hang out, please get a hold of me. Please reach out. Let's have a soda. Let's ride bikes. Let's do interviews. If there's someone who, an athlete you know is going to Sea Otter and you want them on the show, hit me up. Let me know. Uh, I'm excited. I've never been to it and it looks like an absolute riot. I'm going to try to keep this one short and sweet, but I have to give a shout out to my sponsor. I've been in their clothes for almost three, four months now, and it's Mammut. Mammut.com. Check them out. I'm riding in the Laliste jacket. Uh, it's phenomenal. My color is dark cheddar. I don't know why I paused there. It's called the Laliste. It's a lightweight free ride jacket, so it kind of does it all. I can ski the resort in it. And I can put it on for touring, and it's lightweight and breathable, and it, you know, I can crumple it up in a ball and throw it into my bag. Uh, check them out, mammut.com. While you're there, check out their equipment. The Barry Vox uh, Beacon. It's I can't even I can't even explain how rad that thing is, and it's just revolutionizing and changing and making it safer for us to go into the backcountry. So again, check them out. Mammut.com, always rocking that dark cheddar kit. Enough about my dark cheddar kit. I want to get into my guest. My guest this week is one of my, if not my favorite athlete. Uh, I don't know if he knows that. Maybe he'll listen to this episode and he'll know that. Uh, I discovered him years ago when he Snapchatted Everest called Everest No Filter. He did it with Corey Richards. Uh, and they, they tried to climb Everest with no oxygen, and they Snapchatted the whole thing. It was the most organic, personal experience that I could have imagined to watch from my couch uh, on, my, on my iPhone 7 at the time, or iPhone 8 at the time. Uh, my guest is the one, the only, Adrian Ballinger. He has Everested over eight times. He's done Everest and K2 without oxygen. He's, he's a business owner. He owns Alpenglow Expeditions, which is out of Tahoe. This guy, he's the real deal. He has done it all. He's a superstar. He's the one of the nicest humans I've ever met in my entire life. So, Adrian, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for making me a cup of coffee and allowing me in your house uh, to do this interview. So, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm geeking out a little bit. So, here's my episode with Adrian. My name's Adrian Ballinger. I'm a big mountain climber, skier, and mountain guide, and the founder of a guide company called Alpenglow Expeditions. And you've been 
guiding for 25 years. Yeah. So I was lucky enough to start climbing really young and kind of fall in with a group of guides while I was still in, uh, in college on the East coast and started going as kind of like an intern on international trips uh, two big mountains. So I climbed my first 20,000 foot peaks when I was 17 years old, freshman in college. And as soon as I graduated school, which is all the way back in 1997, I started guiding full time. So yeah, it's been, shoot, 25 years. How important is that type of learning, like an internship style? Because I feel like that's how most guides get to where they are. Absolutely. You know, guiding, especially mountain guiding, but also like really, I think, alpinism and mountaineering there's no like clear like school paths even though there is education with things like the american mountain guides association and you can go and take avalanche courses and that education foundation is very important really it's still a sport and activity and a profession that works through mentorship apprenticeship relationships I, i i think that's one of the things that makes it very difficult to break into i get requests all the time with like, how'd you get started? I want to do this. And it is, it, it takes some luck, right? Having those people willing to kind of bring you under their wing uh, to, to build experience because it's not only skills, it's experience that hopefully keeps you alive out there. Yeah. I think it's fun that you say that because it's not, you can be this, have all the skills, but if you don't have the experience, it doesn't, there's so much human intuition involved in guiding and you can't teach that. That's exactly right, right? Like, of course, we want these technical, factual things and science and, and structure behind our gut or intuition. But there's just no way that intuition doesn't play an important part of making decisions in the big mountains because things are just so gray out there instead <laughs> of black and white. Um, and so, yeah, you know, even with Alpenglow Expeditions today, which finally is, you know, getting a little bigger here in Tahoe, one of the things I'm most excited about with my guide company is we can now offer more of those opportunities to the next generation. So we have an internship program in both summer and winter. And when we feel a spark with someone or like see that like potential, the guide team, the experienced guide team is now really excited to be like, well, let's give this person a shot and see how we can help. And most of it is just like kicking them out the door and telling them to go play and get in trouble with their friends, right? But in a, with some guidance and maybe debriefing and things like that, because that's how it started for me. I, I started uh, climbing in the East, in New England when I was 12 years old. And a huge part of what I think helped me in my formation was from like age 14 to age 18, I had a a family, like my best friend's dad, who was a good climber. And he basically gave us just enough leash to go out into like the White Mountains and Mount Washington in the winter, where we thought we were going to get ourselves killed, but we didn't. And then we (laughs) learned and we did it over and over and over again. And that built a foundation of just how to, it wasn't, it wasn't that rad at all. I look back at it, we weren't doing anything cutting edge, obviously, but we were kids and we were learning that foundation of how to stay alive in the mountains. Yeah, and I think it teaches a lot of like, almost for lack of a better term, like F around and find out. Like if yes. you make a mistake, you're going to you're gonna know you made a mistake quickly. Or sometimes you don't know. Sometimes you're like, oh, we made a mistake. Yeah. But it's, I think at the age of like 14, having that freedom to be like, oh, if I, you know, if I put my hand in fire, it'll burn me like hot water burn baby. I think it's an Adam Sandler, but it's important. And I think it's like such a great foundation for, you know, obviously your 30 year career here, but you know, I've been saying touch grass, 
Like mm. kids should go touch grass instead of go outside, touch grass. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it doesn't have like, I think so much, you know, there's so much impulse now to go bigger and further and rad every day or right away. And, um, you know, I see that in my business where people want to go to the raddest mountain first, right? So I have clients coming and they want to go to K2 now because K2 is the raddest mountain in the world. It's not Everest anymore. It's K2. Because K2 is harder. K2 is harder and more dangerous. It's got a 23% fatality rate. And that's exciting. It's like a big number. And so, you know, I, I like people being inspired, but one of the challenges of my business and what I do all day long now, I feel like with clients is being like, you want to get there. Here's your three-year path. Here's your five-year path. Start here. And that's no different than being kids in the whole like get outside, touch grass, play, right? Like my, I didn't start by going to Mount Washington and spending the night out in the winter. I started in my backyard, you know, as like a 14-year-old. And I didn't make it through the night, you know, my first couple of nights trying to sleep in a snow cave in my backyard. But that's okay because I learned and could go inside and warm up next to the fire. And then the next step and the next step and the next step. Yeah, and it teaches suffering, which is like a something that can't be taught, which I think specific to you and your clients, and maybe I'm wrong, but a lot of mountaineering is suffering. I don't care how great of shape you are, how great of an athlete, how much you trained, there's mental suffering. Like you're arguably one of the greatest mountaineers in our generation, and you fail, and you <laughs> suffer, and you, that's, you can't teach that. Fail a lot. Uh, I, yeah, I, I mean, I... I meant that I, in a kind way. Yeah, no, thank you. I, fail, I absolutely agree. No, no, no. Right? Well, first and foremost, I mean, like, I, I think my whole career, like, my great talents are failing, like being willing to fail if I have a great talent. It's like, yeah, more than 50% of the things I've tried to do as an athlete, not as a guide, I've failed at. Um, but those experiences, absolutely, it's cliche-ish, but they are the more memorable ones are oftentimes those massive failures when you still get out alive and what you go through with your teammates or what I've been through with my teammates through those failures. And, uh, and number two, I think like, yeah, like I, I have always been willing to fail and even to fail publicly um, and tell my story. Like I, I think a lot of climbers choose not to tell their story until it's over and they've succeeded. And that's one way to do it. Um, but I think by, by kind of saying, I'm going to go and try this and then telling a story in real time, sharing most likely more often failure versus success, I think it's more real. I think it uh, you know, connects to most of us failing through our lives, but hopefully having a wild ride and a good story through it. Yeah, and to your point, and we'll jump around a little sure. bit, but you did... How I found you was Everest No Filter, right. which for people who are listening who don't know, you and Corey Richards, Corey Richards, right? Yep. Yeah. Snapchat was like the new hot app, which yep. seems funny because it's still yep. happening now, but it, it was like the, it was everyone's on Snapchat. We didn't have TikTok yet. Right. The world is a little different. We were on iPhone <laughs> 8s probably. Um, but you and Corey attempted to summit Everest, and correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, no supplemental oxygen. That's right. But you Snapchatted the whole thing, which at that time was like so – you guys were so exposed. Yep. You were so real. I think you did like Everest hair. And again, yep. I'm like – I remember watching this. <laughs> so um, this is cool for me chatting uh, with that's you. That's great. But I remember it. And I remember um, just how real it felt. Yeah. It wasn't 
you know, we see all these films and we see all these like, you know, and they're beautiful. They're storytelling. But this was like, you're like, oh, I have a stomach bug. And I'm right. like there watching. I'm like at work <laughs> checking and I'm like, update this thing, you know? Like, Well, I appreciate you following. That's fun. I, I know it's so, it's so, so that was 2016, the first year we Snapchatted, uh, you know, um, Everest No Filter, uh, our first attempt without supplemental oxygen. And it is so funny to look back now because the reason Corey and I chose Snapchat and decided to try this was 100% because we were feeling like Instagram had become too perfect and everyone always posted the beautiful sunsets and the summit shots or from the pro skiers, just the rad, perfect cliff drop or line in Alaska without the weeks of like festering, suffering, drinking whiskey, bad weather, getting hurt, getting avalanche, all these things. And it just was starting to feel fake and not really fair. And uh, so, and, and we felt that really like, you know, in our, me and Emily had done a ski trip that winter to the Alps and the conditions were terrible, just awful but all we saw for three weeks while we were just getting the shit kicked out of us was like everyone else's time in the alps looked perfect and it's like it's not the truth but it but it looks like it is on instagram and so that was kind of the there's the dog she feels strongly about snapchat <laughs> catch uh you know we we started to see people using snapchat mostly kids and it was like wait it's just completely unvarnished and real and that's where the everest no filter name came from it turned out to become kind of this moment i think because people were trying to figure out what snapchat was how to use it and like we were lucky enough to have great sponsors and support. So we had the budget we needed to be able to send Snapchat videos in real time by satellite internet from the mountain. And, you know, it was wild. A 12 second Snapchat probably took 20 minutes to upload. And it wasn't like you just fell asleep while I was doing it. You were like restarting, restarting, cancel, fail, try again, shrink the, you know, doing all these different things. But it worked. And we and got that to was all story. in real time. Like there all was, you guys time. didn't just take a bunch of videos and then get back and then upload it. Like it was all as close to real time as you could. So like same day we'd finish an epic or what felt epic to us day of climbing. We'd be tired, sick in a camp at, you know, let's say a tent at 26,000 feet. And we'd be like, okay, tonight it's your night to melt snow, make water and cook food while the other person was going to spend five hours like trying to upload everything. And then the next night we'd switch and, you know, cooking food and melting water was a lot more fun than loading Snapchats, <laughs> but I'm really glad we did it. I mean, by the end of that first season, when I ultimately failed, you know, we were getting millions of unique views a day and, you know, had to hire someone to help start managing comments and questions and things like that. But the, it felt like a community. It really did. Like we were weren't climbing alone anymore, which we loved. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it doesn't seem that long, but it was eight years ago at this point. And that was so raw, real, and ahead of the curve at that time, specifically on Everest. Yep. I think. That's right. How do you, I don't, like, I'll tour, I don't know, a thousand foot of vertical and I don't want to pull my phone out. How <laughs> did you, like, I mean, it becomes a job, yeah. so you know you have a mission, but, like, how much added risk did that add to the equation? That's a good question. I actually don't think it added a lot of risk. Corey and I were pretty, um, you know, just uh, like we, you know, we weren't going to do that to the point where we were going to like lose fingers to frostbite or we were going to not take care of ourselves and our needs in a night and then be, be screwed for the next day. So it was all about balance, right? Um, so I don't think it added necessarily risk, but certainly it added 
effort and we got really annoyed at it. And I think <laughs> that's where real true teammates Got, you know, the importance of that come about, right? Because I'd have my low moments where I'd be like, fuck this, we're not doing this anymore. And Corey would pick up the slack. And then a week later, Corey would, uh, you know, need a break and I'd pick up the slack. And we just were able to kind of work together like that. And I think the timing was also right because Corey and I talked a lot that first season about like the selfishness of big mountain climbing. You know, we raised hundreds of thousands of dollars to go and walk up a hill without oxygen that people had walked up without oxygen before. And it's a pretty selfish pursuit with a bunch of risk that the the outcomes usually in climbing are pretty much for your own self-satisfaction. And so I liked the fact that it felt like we were sharing a story that was meaningful to people, probably for their own reasons, you know? And whether it's about the suffering or the potential of failure or just like the the mediocre like grind of the day-to-day on Everest, like it connected with people. And maybe I'm just telling myself that this, but it made the experience feel like it wasn't just about me 100% of the time. No, and I think, you know, I, I was a fan. I watched. I didn't know you. I just met you this morning. Um, I think it created a sense of community, which is important within this industry that's what we're all driving for that's the the end goal is to create like a not necessarily a safe space but a safe space for everyone to just be vulnerable and like be alive and like share each other's pursuits and failures and like you failed on the first one which again i don't want to keep saying but like you went back and did it and you you got it which without oxygen congratulations that's insane (laughs) but like i think being raw and being exposed and showing that like did Corey make it the first year? Corey made it the first year. And that was one of the hardest things about my failure, right? Was like, there was no way really to blame it on conditions or avalanche danger or the weather, all these traditional excuses that we have as climbers. Like, ah, it just wasn't in. It wasn't good. It was like, well, this guy, my peer, in the exact same conditions on the exact same day after the exact same two months did it when I failed. And that so it was my personal failure and and that was hard to work through but also important yeah and it's a testament to like your professionalism like it's again i said it but it's excuse me if you're gonna fail fail while trying yeah and i think it showed so much to i mean it was almost it wasn't scripted but it's like okay one person (laughs) made it and one person failed it's like that's real this is real you can't you can't write a better script on everest right with that as it turned out, yeah, I mean, I kind of, you know, you're walking down off the mountain after two and a half months, failing 200 feet below the summit, like, kind of felt like, you know, life was over in my little fishbowl of a world, right? But, but as it turned out, like you said, you know, it, it, it worked out, my sponsors didn't drop me, you know, people were interested in the story. And we were able to build back and go back a year later, Corey came and this time supported me to go back and be purely focused and pretty selfish on what I was doing to have learned from year one, everything from nutrition lessons to training lessons to just I needed to let go of more that first year I was trying to run my commercial team as an expedition leader while also doing this. And I needed to be more selfish selfish and have a sole focus. So getting to go back in 2017, have Corey there supporting me ultimately on oxygen and getting to stand on top was just magical. Yeah. How much harder is Everest without oxygen? Like, is that even, are they even comparable? That's a, it's a great question. And it's one that I, I actually struggle with a little bit because, um, so I've summited Everest seven times with oxygen and once without, and I, 
all of those summits with Oxygen while guiding uh, clients for, for my business, Alpen Glow Expedition. So guiding essentially non-professional climbers to the summit. And like the reason it's a tough question for me is all of those summits with supplemental oxygen, they were also freaking hard. And I came closer to dying on Mount Everest on days that I was on oxygen than I ever did without supplemental oxygen because of things that happen that we can't control as humans in that environment. And so like it's so hard with, so I don't want to take anything away from that. And yet, yeah, it's just a completely different experience without. And the best example I have for that is like a summit day with supplemental oxygen for me. And I'm experienced, know the mountain, have some genetic, you know, qual uh, characteristics that help me at altitude. A, a summit day on Everest for me will be something like six to eight hours up, three to four hours down. And I, you know, we'll be on the summit and doing like, you know, uh, logistics by radio for how we're going to exit the mountain. The day I summited without supplemental oxygen, it was 43 hours round trip oh um, instead of, yeah, so or instead of about 12. And uh, I was effectively blacked out for more than half of that to where I met Killian Journey, one of my heroes, 100 feet below the summit and had no memory of that meeting. And so when my film team was like, wasn't that cool? You saw Killian on the top and you guys shared that moment. I was like, yeah, that's funny. Wouldn't that have been cool? And they scroll through to hour 27 of the video and there's me hugging Killian. And I would have sworn to you that I didn't see him. And so for me, my body at 29,000 feet without supplemental oxygen, like it was really on the edge for me. Why? Why does someone want to climb? Is it just like the alt? Like, it's got to be a personal goal. You're not doing it for any other reason but yourself. Absolutely. Like, I, I mean, well, just imagine, like, so I dreamt about Everest. I started thinking about Everest. So I started climbing when I was about 12 years old. I started reading books about Everest when I was like 14 or 15, like the original Messner books and all about the early climbs and things like that. And like, so I fell in love with the idea of Everest. So then I started high altitude climbing and you started 14,000 foot peaks and 18,000 foot peaks and 20,000 foot peaks. And it turned out like I was genetically pretty good at it. And, and my willingness to suffer fit well with kind of the low grade pain of altitude climbing. And so you know, of course I wanted to keep going, keep going. It took me to, you know, age whatever, 32 to get to Everest for the first time. And I could only go as a guide because I couldn't afford to go. So I had to build experience to have the reputation to be able to do that. I went as a guide, did those initial few years of summiting with oxygen. And what I found was like, I knew with oxygen, I could summit. I could go back year after year after year and work and feel confident that I could work with my clients. And stuff would happen that would throw us off and we wouldn't summit, but it wasn't my personal, physical, or emotional, mental level um, that caused me to fail with oxygen. And so the whole thing that fascinated me since I was 14 was the unknown of the outcome when you go to Everest. And with oxygen, I hadn't really found that line. And so the question was, well, Without oxygen, maybe that line's out there. And it turned out it very much was. Like, I would have died in 2016 had I not turned around without oxygen. In 2017, had I not had the support of a Sherpa team that knew and loved me and worked with me for years, a filmer, Topo Esteban Mena, who was also an unbelievably talented no-oxygen climber, had that team not been surrounding me, even in the year I succeeded, I think I would have had a tough time getting down. And so... 
Yeah, I found the line. That's what I was looking for. That's a phenomenal answer. I don't know if you know that, but that is like so, most people ask their why, and they're like, I don't know. But like that is like not rehearsed, but it's just like a genuine answer. It felt Thanks. that's that's not that my approval matters. But. <laughs> no, I appreciate. It. I mean, it's something I think so much about. I think because, of course, I've lost friends in the mountains, like so many of us have. But like, if I'm if I'm going to go back and do more of these experiences, I kind of need to know why I think, because the risk is real and for sure. And so, you know, right now I'm getting ready to go back this spring to, for another big personal project without oxygen on a big mountain. And it's been three, you know, since 2019. So more than three years since I've thought about doing that. And so I've been in my head a lot. Yeah. And I think that's what we forget with, with mountaineers like it's mental it's a big mental game and you being a guide and running a giant guide service how do you prepare because everest costs a lot of money that's right so like <laughs> so like the your clientele is mostly high-end i'm assuming not necessarily mountaineers but maybe and maybe i'm putting maybe i'm like stereotyping a group but like they have a lot of money they can do whatever they want Maybe they're a little bored, so they want to challenge themselves and themselves in a different way. Like these guys can go heli skiing every day if they want to; they can afford right. that. So, how do you get them to like maybe ditch their ego and be like, "We're all human here," yep. and this is like Everest doesn't care how much money you have. Everest doesn't care if you're a heart surgeon. Yep. Everest doesn't care that you're a lawyer. How do you coach that? Yeah. So, well, so a couple of things I, you know, first of all, of course that client stereotype is a lot of my business, you know, very successful, very goal oriented, uh, business people that have the financial ability to do this trip, but it's not everyone. And so when we join a team together, 20 to 30% is going to be something else. It's going to be the guy who lost a leg in Iraq who's fundraised to do this trip. It's going to be the U.S. Postal Service carrier from, Wash from Seattle who's climbed all the local mountains and, you know, spent 10 years putting aside four grand a year to finally be able to get here, things like this. So there is always a dramatic range, and that's part of what I love about teams um, and the teams we bring to Everest. Uh, the, the second thing of like how we kind of coach though, that the mountains in charge is like, no one comes to Everest with me or Alpenglow expeditions until they've spent years climbing other mountains. The vast majority of people who contact us and say, I want to go to Everest. And we say, here's your three year path to get there. They'll climb a few other mountains, have fun. I hope learn something and then not continue. The ones who make it all the way to Everest with us, they've found a passion and by the time they've gone to Everest, they've learned that they're not in control because they've had a big storm or they've had a tent collapse in a, in a snowfall or they've gotten the shits on summit day and like <laughs> just gotten crushed no matter how much they want the summit. They can't do it because they got screwed. And uh, so having those experiences on other smaller mountains, I think is absolutely essential to once you get to Everest, you have a healthy dose of like respect. The other thing I think like we as a company do, a, 
you know, this is terrible advertising, but we tell everyone. So I've now guided the mountain 13 seasons, 13 years. Six of those years, no one on the team summited, which means it wasn't about how strong you are, how fit you are, or how bad you wanted. It's about everything else that makes Everest so hard. Geopolitical stuff, earthquakes, avalanches, COVID. Like it just goes on and on. The things are out of your control. We tell all those stories before someone sends us their $85,000. And so they know they've got a 50% chance that it's going to be out of their control and they still don't summit. And any company out there who says they have a 100% success rate is lying. Yeah, how do you... Because there's... I mean, Everest has been commercialized. You're part of it. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> um, and I actually talked to Dave Watson about this. Yeah. Um, and... You know, it's like, how do you, you're not gatekeeping, but you're just like, you can come, but you, this isn't for everybody right. almost. So it's like, it's an interesting, it's your livelihood, part of your, I mean, you're, you own an expedition company and you're also an athlete. So you're playing both roles, yep. but it's so fascinating. And Dave Watson had a good answer. He was like, no one belongs on Everest. Right. Nobody. So who am I just because I'm a little more. I'm an athlete, I'm an athlete or I've dedicated my life to this versus the guy who dedicated his life to going to school and being a, he deserves there to, he deserves to be there just Absolutely. as much as I do. But long story long, <laughs> there's a lot of guide companies that don't care about that. Yep. How does that <laughs> like go? I, I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Uh, no, I don't want to, not at all. But like, how do you, how do you say we're the good guys or how do you, right. I don't know how to ask that question. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I understand what you're saying. I, you know, it is funny. It's like, I, I feel like Everest and maybe a lot of our outdoor, most sacred, beautiful places, like they're kind of at a crossroads because we have been so successful at popularizing what we do. My whole mission in my life as an athlete, as a speaker, as a guide service owner has been to encourage more people to experience what I think is so special in the mountains, whether that's Everest or the backyard here in Tahoe. So like certainly now that everywhere is busier, I'm not going to stand up and say, shoot, we shouldn't have so many people out there. Like, no, this is what I wanted. I think we can affect cultures and communities in positive ways if more people play outside. Um, and so like, even on Everest, like, I don't want to say it's overcrowded. In fact, I don't think it is overcrowded. I do think that you use a good word. The, there's actually no gatekeeper right now. Uh, there's just business and money. And that is a dangerous place for the mountain to be in. Um, we can try to be the good guys or believe we're the good guys, hide, re hold really high standards for removing our trash and human waste, uh, making sure our, all our guides, clients, and Sherpa are, are super experienced and have the right equipment and have backup communications and safety and oxygen. We can do all these things that we think are right and try to be a good example in the industry. So we do that. Uh, we can talk about it on podcasts like this to try to encourage people. Hopefully people hear things like this and they ask questions of their guide company. How much do you pay your Sherpa? Do they have the best equipment? Have they been to the Kumbu Climbing Center to get years of education before they go to the mountains? These requirements that the good companies have. So hopefully we can kind of self-educate and then we can attempt to 
push the Nepali government to do a better job there. The, the truth is, if you think about the seven summits, the tallest mountain mm -hmm. on each continent, which are now all incredibly popular, they, the other ones used to have the same problems Everest has today. Aconcagua, I stopped guiding from 2000 to 2009 because it was such a dangerous shithole. <laughs> And the government saw money and companies moving away from it and clients not coming and going to other mountains in Chile instead of in Argentina because they're almost as high but not as dirty and messy and unregulated. And the government came in and effectively regulated the mountain and now it's one of my favorite places to guide and climb. Uh, Denali 40 years ago did not have the management it has today and there was poop everywhere and all these different things. Today it's highly managed with climbing rangers in every camp with citations and people publicly shamed and experience levels recommended and it's a much better experience today. It is possible on Everest to both have a success successful functioning tourist economy with local operators and to have standards and yeah so I just want to encourage that and I think more and more people are all coming around to that in the industry did you ever think it would be so political no that's a great point I mean when I when I went to Everest in 2008 for the first time I I just had no idea that such a big part of my job was going to be kind of like the politics of the place both in China and in Nepal and the politics between the guide companies, you know, I really thought the challenge of the mountain was going to be how to survive at 29,000 <laughs> feet and take another step. And that still is challenging, but that's like the fun, beautiful, easier challenge in some ways. It's simpler, maybe. Simpler. It's not easy, <laughs> but maybe it's a little maybe. Simpler. But it's, I, it's funny asking you because like you've, you did the Discovery Show. I don't remember what it was called, but with Russell. Yeah. Um, Everest Beyond the beyond, Limit. But like <laughs> filming on Everest, yeah. which is insane in itself. Um, and I always laugh because those guys don't get any credit. Like they're showing the you guys suffering. Yeah. And it's like that filmer's 100 steps ahead of them right now. 100%. Like that's always been my... And they're filming you as you pass and then they're packing up and passing you again to film the next shot. Um, a lot of the filmers on Everest and in the Himalaya, they're actually mountain guides. And they're mountain guides that either have like burned out <laughs> working with people. Right. And when they're filming, they don't have to work with anyone, but they have that experience and strength. And, uh, you know, they just put their headphones on and do their job and they crank. But it is so, so impressive what they do up there. What's changed from the first time you climbed Everest to now? Uh, so the biggest thing for me that's changed from the first time to today is the increase in the level of inexperienced climbers on the mountain being supported by inexperienced Sherpa who are being led by inexperienced company expedition leaders. So it's interesting because there's a good trend that's happening on Everest that also has some of these issues. So the good trend is it used to be when you went to Everest, you had to go with one of five companies. Russell Brighton, you know, when I started guiding on the mountain, it wasn't like Alpenglow Expeditions just set up shop. I brought my clients to one of those five, Russell Bryce, Himalayan right. experience. And, you know, I became his head climbing guide, but he was still running the overall team. And that was the only way I could really do it. You weren't allowed to just go and set up shop. Um, and so that, that led to sort of a monopoly um, and a very limited number of people each year and, 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 you know, a very specific kind of like type of person. And, you know, everyone was coming from one of these few Western countries or almost everyone, things like that. So 
Today, that's broadened to unlimited numbers of companies on the Nepali side, many Nepali-led teams, but also from other countries all over the world. And um, there's a good thing with that, that we're seeing an increase of diversity. And the other good thing is there are now ways that someone doesn't have to pay $85,000. You can go for $25,000. And so that's still a lot of money, but it is something that, you know, more people have the opportunity to do. I see that as a good thing. The challenge is how to maintain the standards at those lower price points, and that is not yet happening. Uh, and so we're seeing this increase of like, someone will take, some of those companies now will take anyone who's walked up Kilimanjaro, a mountain I wear hiking sneakers on. <laughs> um, it's a beautiful mountain, an incredible gateway to what we do. But it's, a, do. Hike. it's, but a, it's hike. a hike. And you can now go from that to Everest, whereas my company requires, you know, three 6,000-meter peaks and two 7,000-meter peaks and one other 8,000-meter peak and 30 days in crampons and 10 days of rock climbing and all these things. And I truly believe that's what's going to help to keep people alive up there because the thing is, like you said, we're not in control. And so what hasn't happened in a couple of years is the storm that just separates everyone. And all of a sudden, members of teams are going to have no guides and no Sherpa around. And if you've had 30 or 40 days in the mountains on a half dozen other mountains, you might be able to follow your GPS in the fixed line back to a tent and survive that night. If you haven't had that experience, you will not survive that night on the mountain, and it will happen. Uh, and I just don't think that's the situation we should be setting up. Yeah, I think that's a great just mindset. Like there is no – the mountain's in charge always. 100%. There's no – it doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how prepared you are. You just hope you have enough skills that if something goes wrong, you can limp back and find That's a right. Tent. That's right. <laughs> or another great example is so I obviously run trips all over the world and Alpenglow Expeditions, my company just had, you know, five groups on a mountain called Aconcagua, the tallest mm -hmm. peak in South America. It's twenty three thousand feet tall. It's not technical, but it's very high and has massive storms. Well, two weeks ago we had a guide get pulmonary edema on the mountain and he was guiding a private. So, you know, it was him and essentially his clients at, with porters and, you know, a little bit of support. But when that happens, like a client needs to be a teammate first and, you know, sometimes the guide needs rescued. And if that isn't the mindset you've been brought through climbing with and that isn't the skill set you have, again, someone's going to die. And it's like, our mission statement is to create competent team members in the mountains. It doesn't mean you have to get to the point where you go and climb Everest on your own with your buddy. No one's doing that. Right. No one's doing that. But like, it's also not getting dragged to the summit by the, you know, stereotypical Euro guide with a cigarette in his mouth and his AirPods in. Like it's a partnership. It has to be a partnership. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, all the way from Everest to, to Tux in yep. New Hampshire, like it, you have to have a teammate. You know, I've been absolutely I, my my girlfriend's starting. To, she's got a split board. She start and she's always looking to me. And I'm like, if I go down, yep, you need to be able to get me out. Like, yep. it's not just sure. There's a lead, right? Like there's all, but like you could get hurt just as I could get hurt. And one hundred percent, if you get hurt, I have to be able to get you out. I have to be able to find you. I have to be able to save you. I have to be, know how to use a probe and a shovel and anything else. I mean, it's, but it's it's. And I think you Alpenglow does it right with like, it's just experience. You just, that's it. You don't know. I can tell you that all day, but yep. until your guide gets sick and you're now in command 
quote unquote, like you don't know what that is or how it is to make decisions at that's right x amount of feet that's it (laughs) yeah and the beauty is gaining the experience is fun or should be fun and if it isn't fun that doesn't it doesn't have to be type one fun maybe it's type two fun you know it's fun after it's finished but like if you're not having fun and cherishing those experiences of building the experience then maybe everest isn't the best goal um i think that's okay I look at Everest and I say, no way. It doesn't yeah. look fun to me. I think I would go, I would love to go to base camp Yeah, and just hang for yeah. like two months and help. And do some way. podcasts. Right. But There's like, a lot of unique individuals but there. But like that would be fun to me. But like me personally, yeah. summiting Everest is not, it doesn't excite me. It yeah. doesn't, it's not, and maybe that'll change. Who yeah. knows? Like the more I do things and the more, I, you know, like people change and that's great. But like I watch and that's, that's a, testament to you and russell and those discovery channel shows and snapchat like i've seen yeah. enough i'm good like, it's real enough it's, like, i'm good <laughs> and there's certain type of people that see that and they want to do that and that's phenomenal it's yep. amazing it's great to see but it, i don't know it's it's nuts we've done a lot of everest talk yeah <laughs> uh, which is always like you know the but K, it happens k2 <laughs> is shorter but it's harder and That's you right. just did a big expedition on K2. You did a whole film with it with Eddie Bauer, I think. That's right. Is it more fun? Is it less fun? Is it type 2 fun? What is the – I guess what's the – I mean, we all know the appeal of Everest. It's, yeah. It's the, it's the, it's the Super the Bowl. It's yeah. the highest. It's, but like K2, it's not the highest. Right. But it's harder. That's right. Why is it harder? Yeah. And what is the appeal? Yeah, so uh, K2, second tallest mountain in the world, actually only 700 feet lower, um, but incredibly more technical climbing, which also leads to it being more dangerous. So imagine instead of, you know, walking up kind of like a blue to black uh, ski slope, which is what Everest is a lot of the time, not all the time, it's got some rocky sections, but a lot of the time, you know, now you're doing kind of two-tool ice climbing or rock climbing using your hands for eight and a half thousand vertical feet until the final summit section. And so what that means is when things go wrong on the mountain, you're in a much more exposed place because you can't just walk down or just lower the broken person down. And whenever you're on steeper terrain like that, you have a much higher risk of rockfall, icefall, and avalanches. Basically on on Everest, when things fall off, they tend to stop moving after a little while. Uh, on K2, when something falls off, wherever it is on the mountain, it's going all the way down to base camp, essentially. The flat glacier at the bottom of the mountain. Everything. And so if you're anywhere on the mountain, when those things fall off, you're exposed. Uh, you're exposed. And so, you know, those two things are what make it more dangerous. Uh, and you know, kind of has this legendary reputation. His nickname is the Savage Mountain. It does still have over a 20% fatality rate. So one out of five die on the mountain. And that's something that hasn't changed with modern weather forecasting, commercialization, guiding, all these things. And so that's something to be very, very aware of. Why do it with all those reasons? You know, for me, I've had a very long relationship with K2 in that I had never been to the mountain, never been to Pakistan through my whole 20-something year climbing career of high altitude, 
But in 2007, I was invited on a team, a sponsored team, and I was just a young kid. I had done one 8,000-meter peak at that point, Joe Yu, and uh, a group of Norwegian friends in Chamonix invited me to go fully paid spot. And I ultimately didn't go then because I was also going to Everest and a mountain called Monoslu, and I figured if I went to all three, I'd uh, ruined my relationship that I had at the time, which I did anyway. But so at the time I was like, no, I can't do all three. I'm skipping K2. Uh, the K2 expedition happened and that was the year 14 people died in a single uh, collapse of the bottleneck, including the friend Rolf who had invited me. And so at that point, I pretty much never stopped dreaming about K2, but never went to K2 for the next 20 years, 15 years. Um, so it was always there as this like pure thing that I hadn't touched. It was too dangerous. Alpenglow was never going to guide there, just a line. And so as after, this is a long answer, after kind of completing Everest <laughs> okay. without supplemental oxygen, I kind of got to that point where I was like, you know, I knew Everest so well. I've worked on it for so many years. I had so much support. Was it a fluke essentially? And K2 kind of, bubbled back up as like, well, if I want to prove to myself that it wasn't just a fluke, there is no more pure experience for me than K2. That combined with two of my Eddie Bauer teammates already having a plan and us drinking way too much wine together in Mendoza, Argentina after an Aconcagua climb and them inviting me and being like, this is right. It's the it right, right team at the right place with the right kind of, I keep saying pure intentions. And I went very clearly I was only going to go once. If I failed, I failed. I wasn't going to go back over and over and over again because so much of big mountain climbing is the Russian roulette side, how much time you spend in these danger right. zones. Um, so I was only going to go once. And my sponsors didn't care if I succeeded or failed. This was from me. And, uh, and it worked out. And, uh, you know, it didn't feel safe all the time. And I would never go back. You know, one of my partners that year was supporting me and now wants to go back himself and asked if I would support him. And while it's quite selfish, I was very clear that, no, I will not go back to that mountain. But I had this moment. But that's, I think climbing is selfish. Mountaineering is selfish. And I think we're not, we're not shy about that. And I nope. think it's, you know, the selfishness is, is mitigating risk. And like you, you took a chance Yep. and you got out and you got out alive, luckily. And like, you're good. Yeah. Your life has changed. You're married. Maybe a family soon. Totally. It, everything, perspective changes. You're not 20 years old. You're not, Absolutely. You have nothing to prove uh, other than something to yourself, which you did. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I've had you for 45 <laughs> minutes. Uh, we're getting close. What's next for you? What do you yeah. got coming up? I think you're going back to Everest. I, actually not. Oh, no. So, okay. I'm uh, Don't listen to me. Yeah. Listen to Adrian. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, and sorry if uh, I we spoke so much about big mountains. I guess it is still what I love. There is so many other great things going on. Like we'll I got, married, got married this winter and that's a rad adventure. And uh, yeah, we all... You know, enjoying time at home and, and working really hard on Alpenglow as we come out of COVID. Lots of good stuff. But uh, but I am very excited to go back to the Himalaya. I haven't been since K2. So okay. since I summoned K2 in the summer of 2019, I never planned on stopping then. I thought I'd continue guiding and doing other things. Um, and then COVID happened. And so been off Everest for three years or two seasons. This would be the third season. Everest will not be open on the Chinese side of the mountain, the Tibetan okay. side of the mountain that I've climbed on since 2015. And my team all got together in Ecuador 
around the wedding and we talked about whether we wanted to go back to the Nepal side. And based on some of the issues that you and I talked about today, we decided we don't think we can run an expedition we're proud of on the Nepali side of Everest right now. So we are not going back to Everest, which was heartbreaking for our clients who have been waiting three years. But it's a testament who you guys are as a brand and as a company. I, I hope so. It's not for that reason, but like, yeah, we, we, we like argued about it for four hours over whiskey at a fire on the beach in Ecuador, and we just couldn't get to where we would be proud of it. Um, so we're not going back. We decided to offer an expedition to the fifth tallest mountain instead. It's called Makalu. Sits right next to Everest. It's totally rowdy. There will be no one on it. It's basically like the Everest without the Everest, non-commercialized. Uh, I've tried twice before on it. And failed twice before. Uh, so it's a hard mountain for me. Um, and we're bringing a small commercial team uh, that two of my guides will be running. And I actually just decided that I'm going to attempt to go as a, on a personal trip again uh, and try to climb it without supplemental oxygen and ski as much of it as I can while I'm there. It's never been skied. That might mean just skiing while I'm acclimatizing on the beautiful slopes down low. If conditions are good, maybe I get to you take do them higher. That's amazing. Uh, where can people follow you? Yeah. And any sponsors to thank? Anyone who supported you throughout Thanks. the years? Thanks for the opportunity. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the best place, easiest place to follow me is probably Adrian Ballinger on all the social feeds, Instagram, newly TikTok, uh, you know, <laughs> all the good stuff. Alpenglow Expeditions is our guide company. If you ever want to get out and climb with my team, with me, like there are we just have a really talented team both here in Lake Tahoe and around the world on kind of like the greatest mountains, the ones we love. And uh, so if you ever want to give it a try, 80% of people with Alpenglow expeditions have never climbed before or are beginning backcountry skiers and they're coming out to learn the basics. And that's what our company loves doing. And, uh, you know, I am so lucky to be supported by Eddie Bauer, just this rad brand doing really good work and, and attempting to make sure the sports we do are more accessible through keeping products affordable and easy to get and access. Um, La Sportiva, Tink Up Whiskey, Revel Shine Wine, all great sponsors I love working with as well. Amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the great questions. So that was episode... 53. So I guess that was season two, episode one, if we're keeping track. Uh, I am your host, Mr. Adam X, and you're listening to the Pursuit Podcast on the Auto Collective. If you've made it this far into the end, thank you so much. Thank you for the support. Uh, Adrian, thank you for being a guest on the show. Thank you for thank you for everything. You welcomed me in your house. I, I joked that you made me a cup of coffee. Uh, you didn't have to do that, and I appreciate you taking the time to tell your story. And I've geeked out over Adrian as an athlete for years. So it was quite an interview for me and an experience. And I believe he's headed... I don't know where he's headed, but I believe April 9th, he is headed out of the country for another big expedition. So follow him on all of his social channels. I'm sure he's got something wild up his sleeve. He just had a film come out with Eddie Bauer. I believe that's on YouTube. So check that video out. And, you know, thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for paying attention. And, you know, thanks for being you. That's it. That's what I'm leaving you with. Thanks for being here.